Are you tired of listening to the same playlists over and over again? Are you ready for something new? Discover the latest music from LGBTQIA musicians on Homo Ground. There's so much music ready for you to devour, like this song by Carl X. What are you waiting for? Visit homoground.com or search Homo Ground on your favorite podcast app. Same ground, different sound. You're on Homo Ground. And I mean, that's why you want fandom. You want to go out there and say, look, this episode made me scream. It made me squee. It made me cry. Um, You're engaging with the creator's passion. Yeah. Um, And you want someone else there with you in your emotion. Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss one of the games that made them and changed them, and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. So pull up that armchair, feel free to lie down on your couch. Let's talk about our feelings. Or floor. Or floor. Yeah, floor's nice sometimes when you just need to lay down. When the couch just can't cut it. And the couch is just too far away. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So last week, Spencer and I announced that Pixel Therapy is now officially a part of the But Why Though podcast network. But Why Though is a pop culture hub serving up news, critical reviews, and think pieces. And of course, several worthwhile podcasts, including yours truly. So go check them out at ButWhyThoughPodcast.com. And that's Though with a T-H-O. The cool kids spell it. (laughs) Yeah, the cool kids on the interwebs spell it. See what But Why Though has on offer and get involved in the inclusive geek community they are trying to build over there. Go show them some love. It's also a new month. We somehow made it through January. <laughs> and we are clawing our way into February. <laughs> Out of her icy grip. <laughs> yeah. So happy to be here. And that means that I've got a new list of Patreon monthly shout outs for you folks. Uh, these are the folks subscribing at the name in the credits tier or above on our Patreon. So a big warm thank you to Yinka, the original Clutch Companion. Be like Yinka. Thank you, Yinka. Uh, then number two, we've got Val. And, you know, there, Spencer, there's this old this is old uh, uh, children's rhyme mm. that you may mm. have heard. You may be familiar with a little bit of oh. wisdom out of the mouths of babes. They say... They say that first is the worst, but second <laughs> is the best. I've heard this. I've heard this. <laughs> and so, Val, thank you for being our second Patreon name in the credit subscriber and therefore the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, Spencer, that that rhyme does continue. And they oh. say that third is oh. the one with the hairy chest. <gasps> and I'm excited to announce <laughs> that we have a third <laughs> Patreon name in the credit subscriber with the burliest, hairiest chest. Yes, thank you, Jane. Thank you, Jane, for showing up. Big number three. Jane, thank Jane, you so Jane. much <laughs> for joining this uh, this little community. We've we've tripled in size Aww. in just a few short months. Uh, so thank you, Jane, and your hairy chest. Uh, and honestly, you know, I love a hairy chest. So me hit too. me up, Jane. Mm. <laughs> 
If you want to get your name in the credits, head over to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod and check out our plethora of perks that start at just $2 a month. No matter what tier you subscribe at, you're going to get access to a monthly bonus episode that's just Spencer and I deep diving on whatever tickles our fancies. In our most recent episode, we discussed our New Year's gaming resolutions, and it got just as ridiculous as you might imagine. So come check it out. If you're a fan of what we do on Pixel Therapy and you have a few bucks to spare, we'd really appreciate it. And if you don't, no worries. You'll keep getting your bi-weekly dose of Pixel Therapy for free wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Spencer, that was a lot of me talking. <laughs> How about you? How are we you love, doing today? What's on your mind? You talking. I don't know about that. <laughs> Tell me what's going on with you. <laughs> on my mind, okay, first of all, I feel like January is just making sure that every single last day is felt like we are not speeding our way through 2020. <laughs> we are luxuriating in the experience of 2021. So yeah, this is true. It's been a lot. It feels like so much happens week to week that if you blank, you'll miss it. But um, we there was something going on this week that I felt like probably had some intersections with our listeners. Um, just as pe- a mix of people who game and also those who maybe are just getting into gaming or are tipping their, dipping their toes into the world of video game news. Um, so I wanted to just kind of take a minute to talk about what's been going on with all of this news of GameStop and Wall Street and stocks and like what the hell is happening. It's been all over the internet this week. And in case you like us, had no idea what the F was going on (laughs) and learned a lot this week about the stock market, thanks to Reddit. Um, Just wanted to kind of do a quick uh, explainer for y'all. So essentially, a short is when you borrow a low-value stock from a broker and sell it immediately at its current price. Then you're just kind of hoping that the stock's price keeps falling so that you can buy the stock back at a lower price than you borrowed it for and return it to your broker, pocketing the difference. So for example, let's say a company's stock is worth $10 right now. I borrow it from a broker and I sell it for that $10. Then I wait and the stock's price falls to $7. So I quickly buy it back for $7 and return it to the broker and then I pocket the $3 in profit. But there's like no limit to how far a stock could fall or how much you can sell back. So like you could make a fuck ton of money doing short selling, Mm -hmm. which is what folks on Wall Street do all the time. So Mm -hmm. basically, these big hedge fund managers on Wall Street make these bets that certain companies will fail and they loan out stocks in that company because they're super low value. People on Reddit decided to try and save GameStop, a company that Wall Street had bet against. And they did this by starting to buy a bunch of low-value stocks. Like a dude in this subreddit called r slash Wall Street Bets, he literally just convinced a bunch of other people at the same time to join in with him. And thousands of people started buying up the GameStop stock. This drove up the price, and it means that the Wall Street folks have to buy back the stock that they lent out at a much, much higher price. And we're talking like Sometime last year, GameStop stock was worth $4. (laughs) And in a span of a couple days, it went up to $300 and more. Mm -hmm. And yeah, seriously, try to say GameStop stock like three times fast. Mm -hmm. Um, So, okay, went from $4 to $300 per stock overnight. So now these Wall Street guys are scrambling. They're losing billions of dollars while common people are making fortunes. 
However, now the Wall Street guys are trying to shut down the trading of these stocks. There's this app called Robinhood you may have heard of. Um, it's an app that it was literally designed and named. It's called Robinhood in <laughs> reference to its mission um, to enable people with small amounts of money, common people, to buy stocks, even just one or two, um, buying small stocks in small amounts um, to build the same kind of equity that more rich investors have. Um, so Robinhood suspended trading of GameStop stock only for individuals, not hedge funds, just individuals, mm -hmm. claiming that it was too volatile. Um, but really, it was basically a ploy to bring the price of GameStop back down, which stops people from making the money that they fairly gambled and earned, just like any other rich investor. So basically, with all of this happening, people are all of a sudden becoming super aware that capitalism is not the quote-unquote free market that rich people claim it is. There are people behind the scenes pulling the strings. It is designed to make the rich richer and keep us down. Um, definitely check out the Wall Street Bets subreddit if you want to learn more about like how specifically this went down. Um, but I just wanted to kind of break it down a bit because, I don't know, as a trans person, as the child of immigrants, as someone who was taught from an early age that you either marry a rich white American or you become a lawyer or doctor to make it an American society. Like, I guess I feel like I've always sort of had the seeds of anti-capitalism inside <laughs> of me. But like, I was someone who really bought into Robin Hood's mission. Like, I mean, they need to change that fucking app to Sheriff of Nottingham app. But I'm just saying like, the whole idea of democratizing the financial industry of translating it to the needs of common people to taking this thing that is kept intentionally difficult and unreachable unreachable for like the 99% like that they completely reneged on that and were like oh no we're we're shutting it all down just for you not for the people who are actually funding our app behind the scenes like mm -hmm. um like it turned out one of the big hedge funds um, who was caught up, who had a lot of GameStop stock lent out and is now losing billions. They're one of the main investors in Robinhood. So it's just like, mm -hmm. no matter what you do, no matter how far you go, it's like there's no capitalism will find a way to just poison uh, it. And so, yeah, I just wanted to mention it because I just really want to, empower like knowledge can be empowering and we don't have to talk about it for a long time but um if you i have some friends who just were looking at the situation and like i don't even understand how to wrap my head around what this means um but essentially like for those folks who bought gamestop stock i'm really proud of you for continuing to hold um for those mm -hmm. of you who have made life-changing amounts of money overnight who are now able to pay off student debt and stuff like more power to you. Um, mm -hmm. But clearly this system, a system where someone has to gamble to be a millionaire or billionaire, and that's, we just agree that this is the way to get rich. Like, I feel like if anything, it proves that when a rich person tells you, oh, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard and you too can be like me, is complete bullshit. Because these guys are now just mad that we're playing the same game that they've played for decades and have tried to tell us that they've gotten to through hard work alone. 
Absolutely. It's, I mean, if anything, this entire thing has just been clarifying in the sense that like these systems were not made for us. Mm -hmm. They are made for the people at the top and that's the only people that they are meant to serve. And if the system ends up serving someone that they did not expect it to serve, they're going to shut it the fuck down because Mm -hmm. they own the system and they game the rules. It also makes it really clear how fucking arbitrary this stuff is, Mm -hmm. how fucking arbitrary stock prices are. It's mm-hmm. all made up bullshit so that people can continue to get money. And, yeah. you know, you threw out there that pull yourself up by your bootstraps <laughs> phrase, which I fucking hate so much. Mm. And I maybe this is not news to anyone, but it was news to me not that long ago. Did you know that phrase originally, the way it was that when it originally came out as a phrase, pull yourself up by your oh, bootstraps, no. it was meant to be an impossible task. <gasps> when someone said pull yourself up by your bootstraps, they meant. You can't do that. It's <gasps> impossible. And now Cause the straps are stuck to your boots. Exactly. You literally cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh it's not God. physically possible. But now that's become the the cry that we hear wow. in the lower economic classes. That is the like that's the drum that we beat in this country. That's considered mm-hmm. a badge of honor mm-hmm. to pull yourself up by your bootstraps to do the impossible. To not anyone take who's a hand. <laughs> To not right. take a quote-unquote handout, right? To right. Not take the hand that's being reached out to help pull you up. No, you should try to do that yourself. And it's, what's so it's, bad about reaching ridiculous. out to help to grasp the hand that's reaching out towards you? Like, when did we decide that community was the death of success? Like, when in reality, without community, I don't think any of us would be anywhere. Like, any yeah. CEO who's successful... There's a whole company of people who made that success possible. So anyone who tells you that they're self-made is just BSing you. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it literally doesn't happen. And it's, yeah, it's just upsetting. It's literally just just a platitude to... to keep people in lower economic classes right in their position so that the people on the top can stay in their position. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. Just propaganda. Mm -hmm. So don't buy into it. Uh, Fuck Robin Hood. Fuck these wealthy Wall Street fat cats. Uh, And yeah, right there with you. Fuck the stock market. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck (laughs) them. Welcome (laughs) to our video game podcast. Um, Speaking of video games, I guess I could talk about a little game that I've been playing just cause um, I've, I've, I've been playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla for the past month or so. You um, mean Askree? Askree. That's right. As it's, as it's known in my house, Askree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, really fun, sweeping open world adventure. Um, but it also kind of like, it's a game that demands that like eight hours of your time in chunks at a time. So like, and living in a one-bedroom apartment, um, like my partner and I have kind of had to learn to share the TV and stuff like that, um, which we're doing great at, by the way. Like, love us. Um, Good job. Thank you. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't even try with my partner. We've had our own TVs and our own gaming console <laughs> since day one, and honestly, it's probably the only reason we're still together. <laughs> yeah, every t- I, honestly, though, like every time we talk about it, Aaron will, like. Aaron and I, Aaron's my partner, we'll start to be like, one day we'll have a setup like Colt and Jamie. That's our <laughs> kind of <laughs> rally and cry. Yeah, you um, can aspire to be like us. Yeah. But 
Oh, and I want to mention, just in case anyone else is playing the new Assassin's Creed game, um, I finished Valhalla, and then I was like, oh, man, I, I wish there was more Ass Cree. Well, there is more Ass Cree because they're releasing it, like, every <laughs> freaking year. But the last one to come out was called Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and you're, like, a Spartan, and you're doing Spartan shit. And I just noticed this morning it was on sale in the PlayStation Store. It's only, like, $14.99, um, and it's normally, like, 60 bucks. And it's on sale until February 4th. So if anyone wants to download um, the game for the PS4 or PS5, it's only like 15 bucks right now. So just heads up. (laughs) A little tip for you. Anyway, uh, we would spend lots of time like watching each other play Valhalla. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, man, are there any like co-op games for the PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5? Um, and I think, like, we really wanted a game where we could sit together, share a screen. Like, I don't really like split-screen co-ops. I don't really like mm. – like, I wanted an adventure. Like, I wanted not to mm-hmm. just race or fight. Like, I wanted something that would really build our communication skills and something that we could bond doing together. Um, yeah. And so we we downloaded this game. We just started playing it. We're only, like, five or six hours in. It's called Knights and Bikes. Like, Knights, like, K-N-I-G-H-T-S and Bikes, B-I-K-E-S. Mm-hmm. really cute game. Um, I hadn't heard of it before. Um, it's an, an like an, an action-adventure game. It's done in this very painterly fashion. Yeah, the um, art style is very cool. It's really cool, like uh, really stylized and cartoonish um, and layered, uh, colorful. If folks had played Night in the Woods um, or even it kind of, just the the color and the saturation of it and just the, the level of detail kind of reminds me too of games um, like Hades and um, what's it like uh, Transistor. Is that Supergiant mm. games? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Just the, the kind of really taking to the max the aesthetics. Like I just really feel like this game has its own footprint um, and it's filled with punk music. Like, uh, like this really high energy um, uh, DIY like soundtrack that I really love. Um, like, it really brings me back to my college days of going into basements and houses and, and seeing shows and, and feeling like the instruments up close. Um, like, it has that kind of frenetic energy. Um, but essentially, you are you play as these two kids, um, and the game opens in a trailer park. And essentially, um, uh, one of you plays as a a young girl who lives in the Chile Park with her father and recently lost her mother. Mm. And um, she comes across another child who is the second player. So I'm I'm the friend that she made and and my partner Aaron is playing as the girl. And um, she meets this friend and it's just very like uh, childlike. You start playing together. Um, The the new friend that has been made uh, doesn't have a family. And so the young girl lets you shack up uh, in a, a trailer that's empty in the park. Um, and so the two, it's about the two of you becoming friends and going on these, um, you know, it's real to you as the player, but I feel like as an outside observer, maybe imaginary battles where you're riding your bikes through the abandoned park and you're fighting uh, like dust bunnies that turn into creatures or adults <laughs> that are kind of weird. And um, it's playing out. Um, and it's also this coming of age story. Like there's, there's emotional through lines here. Like, you know, that there is pain hiding 
uh, in this child's past. And um, you wonder if this play is maybe um, a coping mechanism for some things that are happening outside of your control, like mm-hmm. the death of a parent, like mm-hmm. the loss of a home, like the dying out of an industry. Um, they, they run like a mini golf uh, park and that hasn't seen many visitors. And mm. um, it's just really cute and really fun. Um, I'm finding uh, just the way the mechanics work of having two players on one screen. Um, yep. I think it can be hard to, when you have two players that are as independent as Aaron and I, it can be hard to kind of keep you together but the game almost kind of encourages separate exploration um like the further apart the two characters go the camera will just keep panning further and further back like zooming Mm. out of the screen so that there's more land showing and and the two of you as you move further apart like it just shows more and more of the map um so Mm. you can actually kind of unlock ways to move forward by splitting up and investigating different areas just to allow the camera to show more of what's being hidden Oh, that's cool. Um, and it's just really natural, really dynamic. We're having a lot of fun. And it's also just like, um, it's not super heavy to get into. Like, you can just pick up and start playing. Um, and so I find after work or after dinner or um, just in a quiet afternoon, if we want something to do but don't necessarily want to do separate activities, like, it's just a really fun way to, to come together and play. So I highly recommend it. Uh, Nights and Bikes for anyone who wants to play a game with a friend or a partner. Um, It has local co-op, so you can play right on the couch with two controllers. But I believe it also has an online uh, function, so you can play with someone online, I believe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Maybe I should look that up. But um, maybe while I look that up, Jamie, are you playing anything? Um, Well, I did finally reach the top of the mountain. I have ascended. Mm-hmm. I have arrived. Uh, she's ascended. <laughs> I am here. Uh, I have beaten Persona 5 Royal. <gasps> uh, they said they, it couldn't be done. They said, I don't know. That they, did they say that? Um, <laughs> For some no, people, I, 200 hours cannot be done. Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely, and you know, it, it definitely put a bit of a damper on the game that by the time I reached that final semester, like, we had talked. We talked before about my kind of uh, obsessive way of playing that game, where I was like really intentional about how I spent the free time that the game gives you, and making sure that I was always maximizing the productivity of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got to the final semester, I realized that perhaps I should not have done that because. Uh, I, there was not much left to do <laughs> in the game. And so you continue to have free time for like another month of game time. And there was just really nothing to do in it. And it really kind of, it made me uh, kind of wishing for the end in a way mm-hmm. that, that dampened the overall experience. But I will say that the the actual story content that is added by that final semester, like if you are going to pick up Persona 5 and play it, like, pick up persona five royal there's that is the definitive way to play the game the final boss that they add the final you know uh villain quote unquote that appears in the game that it is the master of the final palace that you work your way through he was by far my favorite of any of the the main bosses that they have in the game 
um, his reasoning, his motivations for why he's mm. doing what he's doing uh, are really, they really resonate. Um, it's maybe, maybe mild spoiler, I guess, if you're, um, if, if you don't want to know anything about the game, but essentially the, the final boss's motivations are that he wants everyone to be happy. He just wants all people to feel happiness. Um, but in doing, in, in trying to achieve that, he's deciding what their lives should be mm. to bring them that happiness. And when that's ultimately why the phantom thieves push back against him saying that like individuals should get to choose their own realities right. and it's not up to him, but right. that motivation as a key driver for him and, and why he feels so strongly about it is it's all really, really powerful, interesting stuff. And the, the game just like that final semester, it gives you so many great moments with each character in the game. There's so many little just one-on-one -on -one moments that you get with all of the members of your team. Uh, the way it wraps everything up, uh, the, the final fights are so hype, uh, so cool. Yeah. It, it really was a really awesome finish to that game that I feel like I appreciated more than I appreciated the original ending, which I still enjoyed, mm -hmm. but... This this is definitely the way this game's meant to be played if you're going to invest <laughs> those 200 hours. Yeah. So, I don't feel like I wasted I wasted the time. It was a long journey. Um I was definitely ready to move on to something else by the time I got to the end of it, but I love that story. Uh and and it's got me real excited for uh Persona 5 Strikers, which is oh, coming out yeah. at the end of February. Um, which will be different type of gameplay, not necessarily a direct continuation of the story, but still an opportunity to just see new stuff with these characters. And that's really, you know, after 200 hours with them, that's what I care about. Mm -hmm. I just love the characters in this game. So, yeah, if you've ever wanted to experience life as a Japanese high schooler and also wanted to kill God, then Persona 5 <laughs> is the game for you, my friends. <laughs> that's very true. All right. Also, I found out the answer oh. to my question. I apologize. Local only. So you cannot do online co-op with Knights and Bikes. Um, but yeah, if you want to do some, some dungeoning, some island adventuring, then pick up Knights and Bikes. Awesome. Thanks for looking that up. I've uh, definitely heard of that game. I've got it on my list of stuff to check out. Um, so that's cool that y'all are enjoying it. I'd be oh, interested yeah. to continue to hear your review. <laughs> as we move forward. Uh, but right now we are going to transition into our guest for today. Uh, guest, I said guest singular, but actually we have two guests today. Bam. Our guests, plural, are Jude McLaughlin and Caridwen Lewis. Jude is a Lambda Literary Award-nominated science fiction and fantasy writer who has also written for tabletop and video games since the 90s. They are the author of the Wonder City series, which has been running since 2015 and centers on the very human struggles of a diverse cast of superheroes. Something to check out if you like The Boys or My Hero Academia. The other half of this power couple is Caridwin Lewis, who goes by Carrie. Carrie is a scholar and lecturer in the fields of anthropology and gender studies. Her book, Her Land, Exploring the Women's Land Movement in the United States, came out in 2018. And she's currently working on a new book forthcoming from Macmillan Publishers called Fan Bodies and Fan Performance, Community, Identity, and Intersecting Selves. Aw, yeah. Um, and just a couple quick notes before we jump in. Um, first, Jude just wanted to just wanted us to acknowledge that they've recently made the switch to using they, them pronouns. So there may be a couple self-misgendering instances going on here and there in the interview. 
Um, it's totally a process. And I just want to note that we are so honored to be one of the first public places that you shared your pronouns, Jude. Um, thank you so much. And we yeah, heart you. Thank you. Also, Carrie uh, mentions an event near the beginning of the episode called Race Fail. Just wanted to take a minute to give some context on that for people who may not be familiar. Race Fail is the name given to a series of interconnected events that happened in the science fiction fandom around 2009. Um, and it involved a lot of prominent authors in the scene, including N.K. Jemison and Nalo Hopkinson. I wanted to read this short statement from Nalo Hopkinson from her Guest of Honor speech at the International Association for the Fantastic in the Arts in 2010 on what went down, um, just to give folks some of that context. So she says, in the course of Race Fail 2009, I have heard white people in the community who are angry at the anger displayed by people of color in the community. People who say that we don't deserve to be listened to if we can't be polite. I couldn't figure out why this statement felt wrongheaded to me until I read a post by my colleague, writer N.K. Jemison, on Race Fail. She pointed out that discussions of race in this community have been happening politely for decades. And though there has been change, it has been minimal. When we people of color started to blow up, suddenly there were more of you paying attention. That's the thing. I've said that when you step on my foot once or twice, I might politely ask you to get off of it. But by the thousandth time you do it, the excuse of, I didn't see you there, starts to, hound, starts to sound a hell of a lot like, I don't care enough about you to pay attention. The vehement response of people of color to race fail got more people paying attention, both white and of color. It showed us people of color that we do have a certain strength of numbers and that there are more of us than the one or two visibly of color people you'll usually see at a convention. People of color in this community have started publishing ventures together as a result. Some white people in the community began addressing the issue and began creating forums for discussion. Some of them held fast even when they came under attack from all sides. A small handful of them had the guts to examine their own statements and actions perceive where they had been racist and admit it without saying that they were now afraid to go to cons because of angry brown people. In my experience, the wrath of the white majority majority is much more dangerous without name calling, baiting, or blacklisting, and without deleting their whole blog right after posting an apology on it. That's, that's the end of the quote. Um, I just wanted to note that, like, so race fail changed a lot of the ways that fandom spoke about race for years to come. Again, this happened in 2009. But I think it's important to note that from Nalo's words, um, you know, and still not enough has changed. White people still get defensive when Black people, especially Black women, get together and express, uh, you know, pain and hurt and and the truth of what happens to them. And you know, it's been more than 10 years since race fail. And I still feel like, especially in the games industry, mm -hmm. um, women, especially black women are still attacked from all sides just for saying like, Hey, this is fucked up. Like yep. look at what happened this week, uh, with popular streamers and the community. Like there's this really popular streamer named this white guy named Ninja, which I'm kind of just like, you're a white guy named Ninja. So already mm -hmm. you kind of suck <laughs> at race <laughs> discussions. But he's like the most, he was the most popular streamer like on Twitch for a long time. And the New York Times felt like it was a good idea to interview him for a profile. And he basically came out and was like, yeah, I know that I, I mostly market to kids and that like millions of children watch me, but it's like not my 
responsibility to teach kids that racism is bad. It's the parents' fault. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, no. If you're building your entire entertainment career on marketing to children and having children watch you, it is your fucking responsibility to make sure that what you're saying is fucking equitable and not racist. So, um, Well, and then, like, I don't want to drag us into this, but (laughs) what pissed me off even more is that, like, then when... Uh, you know, I guess like black gaming Twitter, Twitter, like tried to educate him about why what he was saying was ignorant. He lashed out and started and started saying that, like, I've donated so much money to BLM. And basically this uh, what I think is like a super fucking white mentality of Mm -hmm. like, well, I've I've done the one thing that I was going to do. So I don't have to take I don't have to, like, think about racism Mm -hmm. anymore because I did a thing already. Um, and especially, yeah, people who uh, donate a lot of money, uh, yeah, they think that that has bought them out of having to think about it. And it's, that's not true. It's bullshit. He's a piece of shit though. Anyway, I don't even want to talk about him because I don't want to give him any more platform space. He said, he said a lot of bullshit over the years. And I think it sucks that the New York times decided that was the gaming personality that they wanted to profile in this day Mm -hmm. and age. Do your fucking research. Yeah. So we have a long ways to go. Um, definitely Google race fail 2009. Um, there's a lot of documentation within the science fiction fandom about the situation. Um, you know, keep examining your biases, uh, listen to black women. Um, and yeah, that's a little bit about race fail. Finally, um, just a bit of a personal note before we jump into the interview, um, but Jude and Carrie are actually people who have significance in my personal life. Um, They are people that I consider queer family. Um, Jude and Carrie were the first people that I met as a young person who didn't even know what it meant to be trans. Um, They were my first example of a queer couple that, like, were married and had a life together and were happy. And um, as someone who has had a lot of struggles with my own family and, and being accepted, um, Jude and Carrie are really special to me and, and they are chosen family. And, um, I just think that, um, queer people, we don't often get the chance to have intergenerational relationships that span decades. And so I'm just really happy to be sharing this conversation with them, with all of you. Um, and without further ado, we can't wait to bring you this interview with Jude McLaughlin and Carrie Ben Lewis. Hello to our wonderful guests, Jude and Carrie. Um, thank you so much for joining us in the Pixel Therapy Studio. Um, before we jump into the questions, uh, would y'all mind taking a moment to share your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about how you spend your time? You go first. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, I'm Carrie Lewis. Um, Carrie is short for Caridwin, um, but everyone calls me Carrie. Uh, I'm a, uh, an adjunct or a contract professor. I currently work at Brandeis University and over the summer I moonlight at Harvard. Um, I, uh, currently spend my time, uh, uh, sleeping mostly. Um, <laughs> sh- shall we, shall we blame the, uh, the COVID for that? Um, yes. not that I have it, but that I'm, you know, really, you have stuck at home and depressed. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, also, I also, yeah, I also have fibromyalgia. So, um, I, 
spend a lot of time kind of trying to catch up with my work on that. So when I'm not actively working, I'm actually working on a book about um, fandom and identity, which includes mm-hmm. gaming. Um, mm-hmm. Because gamer is a kind of fandom. And I'm looking at the ways in which um, a fandom identity intersects with other aspects of identity, particularly focusing on minoritized identities. Mm. So uh, gender, uh, sexuality, race, and disability are the main vectors that I've been looking at so far. Um, and it's been really, really interesting getting to interview a bunch of uh, fans for this. Um, awesome. And, and I've also been playing a lot of video games. Yeah, uh, video games have really been a bomb through this time of extreme isolation. And Jude, what about you? Well, your pronouns are she, her. Oh, oh right, my, your pronouns. My, <laughs> my pronouns. Um, yeah, my, my, my cognition, not so great right now with, with all of this. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm she, her. And, and this is Jude. Hi, I'm Jude McLaughlin. They, them. Um, I am a medical and science communicator to pay the bills. Um, mm. I've, I've done this for 20 odd years and I write about diseases mostly. Um, fun. And in, yeah. Oh, fun. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, in my copious spare time, uh, <laughs> I write science fiction and fantasy. I've got two novels out. I've got some short stories. I've got a web serial that's on hiatus and has been since a certain someone was elected president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, otherwise, other things I do, uh, I do genealogy. I actually have several genealogy books I've written for my family. Mm. Um I'm a genetics geek because I have a background in genetics. Um and I play a lot of video games. Oh my god! True, um, clear of all trades. Yes, I also do tabletop gaming. We do we do a lot of tabletop gaming when we when we can. So, yeah. And for the for the folks at home, um, how would you define a tabletop game for someone who maybe has never heard of it? <laughs> um. Well, Dungeons and Dragons is the big main is the mainstream one now. Mm-hmm. It's so weird to be mainstream for a change. <laughs> yeah. Um. Dungeons and Dragons is the is the iconic one. Um, basically, you sit around a table with a bunch of your friends. Somebody has created a story for you to walk through. You all create characters to walk through that story. And there's some randomized mechanism, whether it's dice or our homebrewed system right now uses tarot cards. So, you know. Oh, wow. How's that mechanic work? Um, very loosely. <laughs> we have... Our, well, our gaming group is comprised primarily of people who do, do live action role playing games, and they mm. a lot most of them prefer the sort of theatrical kinds. So they're they're very into contributing to the story. So you know, it, there's there's no way to to sort of fudge tarot cards as you flip a card and you hold and you hold it up and you're like, oh well, you just flipped the the tower the, the tower reversed. I think that you've just botched really badly and now I have to be creative and come up with a way for you to botch that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get back to what you had mentioned earlier, Carrie, but before I do that, um, Jude, you mentioned that you are a writer, um, a sci-fi writer. Um, what kind of themes and uh, ideas do you explore in your writing? Um, 
Well, the two the two books that I have out are basically queer superheroes in um, Tales of the you know Tales of the City was was my inspiration for it Armstead Maupin's um, series. So you know it's it's got the the point of view characters that crop up through it. Some of them are superheroes. Some of them are trying really hard not to be superheroes. Um, some of them are queer. Some of them are elderly. Um, so I'm do, I'm doing like exploration of why can't we have books that are basically all queer all the time, mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily about being queer, mm-hmm. but about other conf- queer people having other conflicts like everybody. Mm-hmm. We're just like you, <laughs> except queer. Right, right. <laughs> and Carrie, um, I love that you brought it up already because this is definitely a podcast where we spend a lot of time dissecting games through queer, trans, POC lenses. I think we spend a lot of time um, maybe looking for through lines that might not even have intentionally been placed there because that's just kind of like the queer experience of navigating media. (laughs) Um, And Carrie, as you mentioned, you are currently working on a book um, around your body of work that's called Fan Bodies and Fan Performance, Community, Identity, and Intersecting Selves. Um, So can you take a minute to maybe say more about uh, what this project is and and what it encompasses? well, sure. I'm happy. Like like all scholars, I am always happy to talk about my work. Um, I will happily take up the whole rest of your podcast. So, um, so just a note to all of your listeners out there, if you ever want to get a scholar to talk, just ask us about what we're currently working on. Um, so, so, yeah, this project actually started um, quite a long time ago um, when Jude and I were talking about the phenomenon that we had dubbed conface. Mm. Um, and conface was a term that we uh, used in our small group of friends to designate someone that we like, oh, that person has the kind of face that I would see at a science fiction convention. <laughs> yeah. And that just started me thinking about, with, with, I just had this brain moment of the overlap of conface and gaydar. Yeah, I was about to say, that's like gaydar. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, but, but what about those of us who are both mm. <laughs> because um, are gay people supposed to be at science fiction conventions? Cause mm. you know, like we do go there um, mm-hmm. at, we are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and, and, the, and that actually led me to start thinking about um, a lot of the other things because I started this project right before the um, great fandom uh, race fail happened online mm-hmm. in 2008, 2009, I think it was, or it was 2009, 2010. The first one. Uh, <laughs> Jude says the dates in the first one are correct, which <laughs> is almost uncertainly true because Jude's memory is much, much better than mine. Um, and uh, so I was doing a lot of readings from fans of color talking about their experiences in fandom. I was thinking about how that overlapped. Um, was I subconsciously expecting a white person to be a fan, but not a person of color, mm. um, being as I myself am white. And I'm like, okay, I have to explore that as well. I have to talk to fans of color um, about what makes a fan and fan embodiment. And so mm-hmm. the, the whole thing started getting um, uh, much bigger, but it's been really wonderful um, talking to fans and talking about fan embodiment. Um, and then kind of theoretically, it got blindsided by queer theory 
when I was working at Harvard, I was, um, I was there when Mari Ricci was there, uh, as, uh, temporarily as a guest professor and gave a talk about her new book on queer theory, which I was like, Oh my God, fandom is queer theory. Mm. And, um, then the whole book kind of turned into a sort of intervention in queer theory, thinking about, um, fandom from a, from a very, um, different perspective in that, in that way. Um, uh, because of basically the kind of contributions that, um, uh, queers of color have made to queer theory is very similar to the kind of contributions that fans of color have made, um, thinking about fandom. Mm. And all of that just kind of got messed up in my brain and hopefully it will be much clearer when I actually finish writing it out. <laughs> now, when you say that, um, fan theory is queer theory. Like, um, I know it's all going to be answered in the book, but would you be able to say like a little bit more about, um, how that manifests? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) One one of the things that queer theory does is it, um, a lot of queer theory originates in, uh, media studies and literature theory, um, uh, critical literary studies. And queer theory comes from looking at texts and media in new ways. Mm-hmm. Like we know perfectly well that this person was that, you know, queerness was not necessarily intended in this text, but what if it were, mm-hmm. you know, how do we read queerness in a text? If nobody ever says somebody is queer or how how do we read the connotations? How do we, how do we put some, how do we look at something in a text if it was never intended? Mm. And fandom does that all the time. Fandom has uh, one of the things I love about fandom is that it it is absolutely um, ruthless with the original text. Mm. There's sometimes there's respect for it. Sometimes there's no respect for it. Sometimes mm. fandom is angry with the original text and is like, um, "This is my answer to all of the failures you have." Mm. Um, sometimes fandom is like, "Okay, but." What if in this view, sometimes it's this loving criticism. Sometimes it's, you know, a forest of people with their middle fingers stuck up. Um, it's, it's amazing. And, um, basically what fandom is doing is a lot of what queer theory is doing, which is taking a text and looking at it in entirely new ways and essentially multiplying the text, Mm. giving the text different voices through the interaction of the text with the texts. Um, consumers, as we call them now. Mm-hmm. And um, that really points to the fact that a story doesn't exist until it's listened to. Mm-hmm. Stories need audiences as much as they need tellers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in both cases, one of the things I'm really looking at is affect theory or the theory of the politics of emotions. Uh, because I think that's really important um, in both queer theory and fan theory. Mm-hmm. And um, one more question on that before we move on. But um, I was reading your university profile um, on Brandeis's site, and it noted that um, uh, your project around fan bodies and fan performance explores gender, sexuality, race, and disability in science fiction and media fandom as you uh sort of summarized. Um, and I think that's interesting because um, you so often hear in, you know, sort of mainstream pop 
um, gaming culture specifically, at least, and in a lot of shows as well. Um, but you hear people say that quote unquote politics have no place in games and media, um, that are seen as entertainment or for fun. Um, and so as someone who's studying <laughs> this topic, like, what do you have to say to that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so funny. Um, <laughs> um, politics, it, 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 politics has no place in entertainment is, is a nonsense phrase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like Ursula K. Le Guin's example of a, of a nonsense phrase. The hammer menstruates to me. Um, what? That, that makes no sense. Um, you know, politics is already there. If mm. if you think there are no politics, it's because you agree with the politics. Mm. It's because the politics mm. are have become invisible. Um, mm. The only way people think that the politics have quote been inserted is because they have suddenly become noticeable. Mm. Something is different from the politics they have been offered before. Mm. It's all politics. Mm. People mm. are like, oh my goodness, the children's book Heather has two mommies is political. I'm sorry, Good Night Moon is political. <laughs> All of it is political. Mm-hmm. Everything presents us with um, a, a politics. How many simple children's, you know, illustrated books present us with the idea that you know a marriage consists of one man, one woman, and one or two children? Mm-hmm. An enormous, overwhelming percentage of those. How many? children's books have so much as an interracial couple. Mm-hmm. How many illustrated children's books even have people of color in them that are published in the United States? Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at the um, you know, portrayal of, say, indigenous people in children's illustrated books. I mean, that's enough to put your hair on it. But just thinking about this, you know, what makes a book political? It's like, well, there's something that makes it political. It's already political. Knowing that this is a podcast about video games, um, we'd love to hear more about the two of you and your relationship to gaming. Um, do the two of you identify as gamers? I identify as a gamer. I've identified as a gamer since I was a teenager, mm-hmm. um, and 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 was was offended when people when 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 video gamers started to take the take the the, the tag because I started gaming tabletop you know I, I but i also started gaming video games very young you know mm-hmm. i i my my parents got me a, a, a radio shack ripoff pong game when i was <laughs> a tween and that that was you know that was kind of the beginning mm-hmm. um but yeah so i i i think i really started identifying as a gamer with the tabletop games um, I was, I was running them as a game master. I, I'm still primarily a game master. Um, and I actually, I wrote for some, for, for some of the uh, tables, tabletop industry mm. and, and for video games too. Uh, we, uh, but we worked on those together actually, mm. cause you know, that was, what games did you work on together? together? What did you, what kind of games did you guys do together? Um, we, we put together stuff for trivia games, actually. Yeah, we, we were hired as freelance trivia pro- providers, so <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was really frantic. It was, it was. Uh, I think the first, I think the, the big, the biggest one we wrote for was, um, EA's Trivial Pursuit. Mm. We, we did, we did some of that. That was, oh, 
I want to say 2010 or something like that. We just kind of stumbled into that. But yeah, yeah, so, so I got, you know, I've been a gamer for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And what about you? Do you identify as a gamer or do you just game? I think I just game. Um, I think what prevents me from identifying as a gamer is the sense that I didn't really get to do this when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents never even considered getting a console um, because there was just me and my sister were both girls and mm-hmm. those were for boys. Mm-hmm. By the time they were um, advertising like the Atari and the Intellivision, um, you can tell that like we're really old, um, <laughs> is, th- you know, those were for boys, mm-hmm. which is really funny because my very best friend also had a little sister and they had an Atari. Mm-hmm. So I got to play with that with, with her a few times, although mostly we were much more interested in playing imaginative games uh, together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we used to play with model horses. We oh. made up whole dramatic, like, watership down kind of epic tales. But that, that's <laughs> completely by the way. Um, and, oh, I, and you see, I had a computer. I had a, um, I had a computer. It was so, this is so long ago, my computer had no hard drive. Right. <laughs> um, and, but my parents didn't buy me any games for it. The computer was for school, mm-hmm. but other people bought me games for it. I had the King's Quest games and I had the Hobbit game. These were, mm-hmm. the Hobbit game was a text adventure. The King's Quest had graphics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I never really felt like I got to have opinions on games or that games were like for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think some of this is, you know, my the the early uh, uh, dawning of my gender nonconformity, mm-hmm. because you know my parents are deeply traditional, born in the Depression era Irish Catholics, mm-hmm. and yet they recognized enough of my gender nonconformity at a young enough age that I was roundly encouraged to take computer programming courses. And defy convention, they bought me a computer so that I could do computer programming in school. You know, I had a Commodore 64. Um, so, you know, this, this is, this is where, you know, your parents encouraging your gender conformity and my parents going, Oh, she's, she's never going to be, she's never going to be normal. Let's just, let's just get, get her, get her there where, where she could be successful or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I got a computer my junior year of high school so that I could type up my essays mm-hmm. for my college application. I mean, this didn't stop my parents from making me take a, a typing class my freshman year of mm-hmm. high school. And then, you know, having me earn money by typing my, uh, my cousins, my male cousins papers on God. our, you know, our nice electric typewriter. Oh, no. <laughs> At least you got paid. Buck a page. Buck a page. Yeah. Those papers, literally. Um, okay. So it seems like in childhood and even through high school, like games were the, um, well, for you, Jude, you always identified as a gamer. Um, as soon as you were interacting with the tabletop and sort of like role-playing IRL gaming, maybe we can call it um, <laughs> in some cases. Um, but Carrie, maybe it was just more of a sort of in and out activity, um, but you didn't really identify as a gamer. How do, you, how do you feel like that relationship to gaming has shifted over the course of your adulthood? Like how do you sort of relate 
um, to gaming now. That was for you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like, uh, I feel like I'm much more intensely involved with gaming, actually. Mm. I mean, I was always interested when I had access to gaming. I was like, this is really cool. This is really neat. Um, I was interested in the way that text-based adventures took a story and gave you agency in it, even mm. though, you know, it's actually a really limited kind of agency. But um, you get so much more involved in the story, even with that illusion of agency. Mm -hmm. um, I loved the introduction of graphics. Um, I remember playing around with my first Macintosh with a tiny little black and white, white screen. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I was introduced to the game Fool's Errand. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is this is so cool. It's so creative. It's so surreal. Um, there, what, was, I, I, what was the game? Like, it was like a Fool's it's called Fool's Errand. Um, there's actually a version of it still up on Internet Archive. Um, and it's actually, it's an introduction to the tarot. Um, and it's a puzzle it's, game. It, it's a puzzle game. Um, and it's got this really wonderful retro feel to it now. But at the time, you know, this is cutting edge graphics. Um, <laughs> because it was a Macintosh and that's what you yeah. did graphics on. Um, and I think, but I think what really changed my relationship to games was actually um, getting into gaming with Jude. Mm -hmm. Because when we moved in together, Jude brought a PlayStation, the first PlayStation 1. And, uh, and we started gaming together. Well, you also had, you, you also started gaming um, on mushes earlier than that. And, and I, I joined you on the mushes because you were involved in these and you got involved with one of your other, with, you know, one of your earlier girlfriends and a friend. And, you know, for those, for, for those in the audience who don't know what, what it's, uh, mush stands for multi-user shared hallucination. Um, okay. They were, they were, they were a code child of, MUDs, which were multi-user dungeons. Okay. And it's all, it's all text-based. It's all, um, object-oriented code. Um, and it's basically a space, you know, a virtual space where people could either use it for, um, just community building, like furry muck. Uh, muck is another code branch. Um, was a big, it was a huge furry community. Mm. Um, but, uh, the mushes that, that we were interacting on were role-playing communities that, um, were based primarily off of the White Wolf, uh, uh, universe of vampire, werewolf, mage. Mm. I don't think they ever integrated Wraith and whatever the fairy game was. I can't remember. So it was like a virtual <laughs> space where, like, it was called a shared hallucination because you were all agreeing to a certain rules about a certain world and that you all, like, was it all, it was all text-based or were you actually, it was all like, text-based. And the object-oriented code, you could build rooms mm -hmm. um, with more or less, that were more or less private. And there was, there was the whole structure of the game. Um, we were playing primarily on sort of werewolf-based um, games. So there were the cairns and the communities and the towns around them. People could build their own houses or rooms in, in, the, in the game space. And 
when you were in the game space, you played game. You were if you encountered somebody else in the game space, you could role play with them. Mm-hmm. Um, there were also out of out of character lounges, and, and um, people could people could uh, create private spaces where they could have you know people in to do like private socializing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, Carrie got involved with a couple of our friends on uh, one that's called Garumush that's actually still extant. It started in 1993. Wow, and is still out there. It's all this and- me. Yeah, it's old as you. <laughs> and um, I got involved, and there was there got involved with, with some characters, and um, we had a period of time where um, Carrie and I were involved. Uh, then we moved in together for a year, and then she came up to Massachusetts to go to Brandeis for for grad school, and I stayed. I moved in with my parents because I didn't have a job up here yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so the main way we stayed in touch was on the mushes. Mm-hmm. So I was spending all my time in my parents' basement being the literal, you know, nerd in the parents' basement. Um, and whenever I wasn't at work, gaming, gaming or, or just chatting with Carrie mm-hmm. via a way that didn't cost long distance charges mm-hmm. back when there were long distance charges. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I ended up being a wizard on the mush because I was on it all the time. And then um, a wizard is a kind of super user. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, I see. Um, yeah. We, basically, I, basically I was helping administrate the mush. Wow. Okay. Um, and I, after we moved, after I moved up to Massachusetts, I actually ended up creating my own mush and being God of a mush. Mm. Um, where there was, that was invite only. So we had, uh, we had like 20 or 30 players at the height of it. And that uh-huh. lasted for like four years. Well, I think what, what G is talking about kind of brings up a really interesting uh, question about the increasingly blurry lines between video games and role playing, because mm-hmm. with um, MMORPGs, you know, mm-hmm. people love to role play. Um, yeah. Their video games and their role playing um, hubs. And then we have, you know, Discord. And now that we're under quarantine, where people are um, doing D&D on Discord mm-hmm. and um, the uh, the mush is kind of a an early instance of the way in, in which we use technology to use role playing. I mean, before we even had RuneScape and before we had... Um, uh, World of Warcraft and yeah. all the other mo- more modern um, versions of uh, video games that are video games, but also vehicles for you know role playing are uh, are you know doing your know, game role play. That's so true because it's like I, I feel like I used to think of gaming as a very very solitary activity, like it was something that I did. I was almost kind of like self care, like oh, I'm going to treat myself. I'm just going to play for like six hours and not have to talk to anybody or do anything. <laughs> yeah. But now, like even just in the past couple of years, like, I've really started to um, like more and more. It's like um, social features are sort of getting integrated with how we play, and um, uh, it's just in general the, the gaming community seems to become have to become a lot more visible and normalized in mainstream society too. It's not as weird anymore to be like, oh hey, do you want to? I think mobile games have really paved the way for like normalizing, um, like oh like you want to jump on and play this app with me? Like oh sure, like Words of Friends is uh, that's that's 
that's not a yeah. video game. Like, you know, it's like, but it is. It is. <laughs> but it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and sometimes that annoys me. I'm like, I don't mm. want to compete with other players in Candy yeah. Crush. I just want to do levels. And I don't have a choice on that anymore. Candy Crush forces me into these fake competitions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, look, I just want to play a few rounds of Candy Crush because it makes me sleepy and it's a very good sleep aid. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm. want to play this game in order to dissociate successfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it seems like, so it's spreading in all kinds of, of places. But on the other hand, I think that there's a lot of positive uh, positive things to it. Like, as you say, words with friends, you're taking you know, something like, uh, ahem, Scrabble, ahem, um, <laughs> and making it possible for us to play it with people who aren't with us right now. Yeah. I mean, this is just like the, the classic, um, you know, oh my God, those young people, they're all on their phones all the time. They don't know how to socialize. I'm like, but they're Perhaps, socializing right yeah. now. Yeah. Did, did you mention, <laughs> you know, did you consider the idea that we might be socializing right now? You mentioned this a few minutes ago, Carrie, but there was a game that sort of defined um, y'all's relationship and maybe um, sort of defined your adult relationship to gaming. Um, this is a series that clearly resonates with a lot of people. <laughs> um, we cried about Final Fantasy Tactics with Ghost of Tsushima actor Earl T. Kim. We gushed about Final Fantasy X with our olfactive anthropologist and activist guest Jamila Bradley. And now the game which Jude and Carrie have chosen to tell us about today is Final Fantasy VII. Um, This is a game that came out in 1997 um, and which a lot of critics credit with really bringing RPGs to a Western audience. Um, It's also relevant because there was uh, actually a fully... uh, top to bottom remake um, of Final Fantasy VII that was released earlier this year. Um, but for someone who has never played the game, um, maybe the two of you could take a moment to just describe it, uh, describe what the game is about, um, what you do in it um, to someone who's never heard of it. Well, you pilot <laughs> your your little troop of people that you accumulate over the course of the game in an attempt to save the world. I mean, that's, that's, that's the basic premise. Um, but along the way, you get into these incredibly baroque, um, side stories for all the characters and the histories are, are incredibly, um, weird, weird, <laughs> weird, but also intricate. I mean, you know, uh, we actually, in a, in, in advance of this, we, we, we booted up our game, uh, our uh, Final Fantasy VII game yesterday. Oh, somehow lost nice. 10 hours. Ah! <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, this um, is like a, a very quintessential Final Fantasy title. Um, this is the title where your protagonist, Cloud Strife, which is probably, he's probably one of the most recognized Final Fantasy oh, yeah. protagonists. Um, it's in this very dystopian cyberpunk world. Um, you're trying to fight against this eco-terrorist group. So it's kind of pretty topical on uh, TBH. Um, but, uh, you know, this very like anti-corporation um, uh, story, um, hero journey. But um, what were the circumstances around the two of you playing it together? Like what brought you to this title and why did you decide <laughs> to play it together? Okay, so, um, right, so I got into grad school, um, 
in Boston. In 1997. In 1997. And I had to move to Boston for grad school and Jude um, didn't want to move up because Jude didn't have a job. So I moved in to temporarily to a house with um, four friends of mine. Three. Three. The fourth came up and then occupied my room later. Yes. After I moved out. <laughs> so I spent a month um, with these three friends of mine and they had a copy mm. of Final Fantasy VII. And they called me in to take a look at the opening credits. And I looked at that and I said, I have never seen anything so beautiful in my entire life. <laughs> I had seen anime before. Mm-hmm. I had seen um, uh, CGI, what we had for CGI back in 1997 before. Mm-hmm. But um, the uh, Squaresoft was doing something entirely different with the animation. Mm. Um, it was, cin- it, they did cinematography with it. Mm. And I don't think I'd seen anybody else. I had not seen anybody else do something with that. Um, in a game. So, yeah. And especially not in a game. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is astonishing. So I sat down and I watched them play. So, uh, when I, uh, I moved out uh, a month later to move in with a friend and I needed to get an apartment because I wanted Jude to come up, move up with us. Mm-hmm. Jude had um, bought a PlayStation after I talked to her about uh, Final Fantasy VII after watching it. And Jude brought the PlayStation up. And at that time, my roommate was very messy mm-hmm. and had kind of claimed the living room. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we set up Jude's television at the foot of um, my bedroom, the bed, the bed in my bedroom, on a crate and we connected the PlayStation. Uh, the the PlayStation to it and we would lie in bed in the evenings after coming home from work and school <laughs> and play Final Fantasy every night. Mm. We really got into the story. Yeah. It was just it was the thing we did together. Yeah. But it was also it was also the thing you know I, I think of this in, in as a kind of microcosm of our relationship as we as because we'd Let's see, it was 1998. Um, we'd been together three years at that point. And, um, you know, we started figuring out the things that that we could, that we were sort of falling into doing because we were good at it in our relationship. And we were doing that in the game as well. You know, I'm the one that mostly runs around the landscape and does the fighting but, you know, oh, my God, it's a friggin' platform puzzle here. I hand the <laughs> controller to her. Yeah. Or, or any, of the, any of the puzzles, honestly. I, mm-hmm. I just hand the controller to her. And, and then we got into this, you know, as, as we played more and more games, we got into the thing of, okay, I'm going upstairs to boot up the computer so that I can look up the, the walkthrough for this. And as soon as I did that, she'd figure out the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was kind of her... <laughs> Oh my god! I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I I love like kind of like open world RPGs, but um, I was playing uh, The Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild recently, and I've also been playing. I had also just wrapped up playing God of War from 2018, and both of those games contain um, puzzle moments, like moments where you either need to do a certain amount of steps in a certain time frame, 
or move certain things in a certain way in order to unlock a path forward, what have you. And I realized that I'm very, very, very bad at that. And like, I thought I was someone who was pretty good at games, but oh my F, I hate puzzles. And, um, you know, it's just, there's just something there about like, uh, there's two types of people and you need both of them to get through a game, I guess. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like it's designed that way, although I don't think it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we got into a habit of buying this sort of one-person role, role-playing games like this, and then we play them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, we, what we're looking for is something with, you know, fun characters and an engaging plot. And then we would sit on the couch and pass the controller back and forth. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this is actually a surprisingly, um, I mean, games are actually quite surprisingly social mm-hmm. like this. I mean, even the kind of solitary games, you said, you know, we think of games as being very solitary, Spencer. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that we do. And indeed we, we do sometimes play like that, but I'm thinking about the way that we often, you know, market games to like, teenagers and young people and there's this whole tradition of someone's playing a game and everyone else in the house is attracted to staring at them playing mm-hmm. at the game because it looks fun mm-hmm. yeah and so we get a kind of vicarious enjoyment and of course that's replicated in let's plays mm-hmm. um which mm-hmm. are you know people film it and put it online so that we can see not just because twitch now yeah or twitch now um well i i you know one of our friends um has a disability that makes it hard for her to use game consoles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she does a lot of watching Let's Plays because there are a lot of games that she can't, she physically can't play, mm-hmm. but she'd like to know more about them. She'd like to be informed about the, about the, she wants to see the story for the most That's part. a failure of a game, by the way, game developers. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, now, nowadays uh, we were, after doing 10 hours of, of the old Final Fantasy, I decided to look at the current Final Fantasy. I found a, found a recording of the whole thing online. And we were, you know, we're flipping through it, and I'm looking at the fighting engine, and I'm not capable of playing that game mm-hmm. because I have arthritis in both of my thumbs. Mm-hmm. I can no longer do act- active fighting games for more than an hour, and that's if I'm willing to trade three days of pain. Mm-hmm. And I've just never been able to do that kind of, of game anyway, because one, I find it stressful. And two, I just don't have the hand-eye coordination. And I never have. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has nothing to do with gender and everything to do with the fact that, you know, I've got messed up hand-eye coordination. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I, I can mash buttons randomly and scream. That's all that you needed for the really early, you know, fighting button mashing games. But for this, all this sophisticated stuff they're asking of us now, like actually remembering button combos, really? No. <laughs> um, and trying to get it done in time? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. And it's just what you said just made me think of something semi related. It's just that um, uh, I had gotten hand surgery earlier this summer, um, and there had been this um, assist, sorry, TMI. <laughs> <laughs> for the folks at home, um, but I had a, 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 a cyst growing in the middle of my hand. It was growing um, sort of trapped inside the, the bones 
of my hand and um, it Mm. created arthritis Mm. in my hand. So even after the cyst was removed, um, there's still considerable scar tissue and and I have arthritis. That's not like, I I am now a person who has arthritis in my left hand. And I've certainly noticed this summer, um, you know, even after recovering from the surgery games that ask of me to, to button mash for a time, um, cause pain. Like I, uh, there's yeah. a certain point where I have to put the controller down and rest my hand, which is never something that I'd have to do that I've had to do before. And it's really, um, you know, th- that speaks of course, to my privilege up until this point of being someone who did not have pain in either of my hands, no matter how long I played a game. Um, but I've become super aware of how, yeah, it's fucking true that games are not really designed to be accessible to people, um, who aren't like totally, um, able-bodied or don't have any sort of conditions that restrict how long you can be holding something. I've even found that, um, so I recently got a Switch and I love the Switch. I love playing games on the Switch, but that thing is not really, (laughs) uh, like the way that you hold the controllers, especially when you're playing it handheld, it's just Mm -hmm. not really easy to do for more than like an hour or so. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just important things to think about, like design needs to be inclusive, especially if you're saying that this is a system for everyone, that games are for everyone, then you need to right. kind of like try to make it for everyone. We were looking at the Switch, actually, uh-huh. and that's one of the reasons why we decided not to buy one, because, um, you know, it's no good getting something that's just that badly ergonomically designed, mm-hmm. um, you know, even if it's got some of the currently most popular games. Right. So. And it sucks that that's, mm-hmm. that that's a consideration that you have to make. And it's something that you have to know, like you could spend $500 and not really know anything. You, you may have never played a Switch before. Um, and it's like, there's no communication about what the experience might be like of, of holding and playing this system. And it's just not some, the kind of information that developers right now are thinking to put on packaging but it's like when you buy a sofa it tells you all about (laughs) like you know the softness versus firmness and like all of these dimensions that we just know are really important for something that we're spending hours sitting on well we're spending hours using this thing shouldn't it have more comprehensive yeah Um, yeah it absolutely should it's, it's great to see more and more, um, you know, resources like canIplayThat.com, which um, right. do comprehensive reviews of um, accessibility standards for games. But it's just something that very clearly needs um, needs more. Like you mentioned how um, it was the experience of playing the game together was very emblematic of your relationship. Um, conversely, like, do you feel like playing the game together changed or influenced anything about your relationship? Like, like what value did it bring the two of you and as your relationship deepened? Well, it provided us with endless joke material. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Darmok. We, we have endless Darmok from it. And Dar- yeah. I mean, Final Fantasy VII is the reason why when one of us is feeling angry for no reason, we look at the person and we say, Zoo feels fury. Because there's this monster <laughs> called the Zoo. Called the Zoo, L Z U U. And while you're fighting it, just occasionally you get the message, Zoo feels fury. 
And it doesn't affect it doesn't anything. Affect anything. It, does. it just, it just <laughs> tells you how the monster is feeling. <laughs> and we just thought that was hysterically funny. And we still think it's funny 20 years later, which I guess gives you an idea of our sense mm-hmm. of humor. Um, uh, but, but rewinding to our previous uh, topic, one of the things that was great about booting up Final Fantasy yesterday was um, they have um, active time battle, which is turn-based, kind of. People take turns, but once your time comes pops up, you can take it, even if other people are taking their turns. You can turn that off and make it true turn-based. Mm-hmm. So after I nearly got us killed, I remembered that option and turned it <laughs> off, and now it's turn-based. Yeah. So that we are, we are no longer um, dying with being hit by monsters while I'm trying to figure out, is it magic or item that I need to use to cure everybody um, because I'm, I'm a very slow thinker. Um, you are not. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. Um, but yeah, the, I think, I think playing the game together, I think was really fun because it, um, because the plot is really intricate and interesting and yet so badly put together, you can drive a herd of antelopes through the holes in it. Mm-hmm. It really kind <laughs> of, um, formed a, a great kind of, uh, it, it's really great for fandom. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why there was such a huge Final Fantasy fandom, mm-hmm. um, in, in the world, um, out there on the internet. Um, but for us, it was just really great because we could, we could make jokes about it. We could speculate about it while we were playing. Um, and we were playing this through for the first time. And the writers were so, even, even with the terrible translations plot <laughs> and the terrible translation, mm-hmm. um, it's such a good game emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I blame most of it on Nobo Omatsu. Mm. Which I just totally mispronounced. My my the composer. My uh, <laughs> apologies. The composer is so brilliant. Oh yeah, those Square Square Enix uh, like compositions are just. Whew. Yeah, and I, I don't understand why when they when they remade it. I mean, we were watching bits of the of the 2020 remake, mm-hmm. but they don't have Olomatsu's music uh. except at the very beginning, and it's like, yeah, it's partly the music. The music is amazing. But also, it's because they were doing this so cinema, so cinematographically. Mm-hmm. I, I can talk. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beautiful. It's. I mean, the music alone, however, gave us goosebumps. We we, we booted this up more like, God damn it, I have goosebumps. Full it's body like, chills. Full yeah. body chills. It's like that goddamn John Williams when we go into the Star Wars movie. Like, how dare he give us goosebumps with his music? Well, mm-hmm. Oematsu does the same thing. Uh, but you know, even though we're watching. A, a characters made out of Walks. cardboard boxes, um, and and their <laughs> anime surprised faces, yeah, <laughs> all the all the time, um, all, when you're on the field. But it's so evocative. They, it's so evocative. They did so much work on the animation. They did so much work went into it as a piece of art, and I think it was just so amazing for us both to. Uh, emotionally, it was just so much fun to, to, to go through all that, those emotions with somebody. Yeah. And th- I mean, that's why you want fandom. You want to go out there and say, look, this episode made me scream. It made me squee. It yeah. made me cry. Um, you're engaging with the creator's passion. Yeah. Um, and you want someone else there with you in your emotions. So I think that's why it was so, so fun for us to, yeah. to play this together. 
Um, I mean, we, we had these intense moments together mm-hmm. and, and the remake really felt flat. It didn't feel intense at all. Mm-hmm. The medieval-esque palettes are so drab and it's like, it's gray, it's brown, it's nothing. But, you know, we were looking at the palettes on, on Final Fantasy VII. It's like this, this whole scene here is, is, you know, washed in green. You know that it's Mako poisoned because it's all this green wash. But, you know, the train station is, feels friendly because all the, you know, the, the, the paving stones are done in this, in this palette of pinks and purples. Mm. Um, even though they used some pre-generated textures, it, it looks all hand painted. Mm. It's like looking at over, it was, and it, I, ju- I just, I just, it's like painting with pixels, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is not to say that it's a perfect game. I mean, the, you know, we played through the wall market scene where Cloud has to cross dress and everything. And, you know, there's still some stuff in there that's like, mm, yeah, that's not so great. But I remember at the time, I was so fucking delighted. I never thought I would see anything even close to queer representation in a video game. Mm. I was like, oh my God, he's hot tubbing with the, with, with the village people. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Jude, Jude, I think these people are meant to be gay, <laughs> openly gay in a video game in 1998. You know, yeah. it, it meant so much to me to have representation, even if it was bad representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One more thing I wanted to mention, just because uh, we were talking about the game coming out in 1997 um, and being such a, a force in, in, in your relationship building um, as a couple. And, um, you know, so 1997 um, was right around when Bill Clinton had just signed the quote-unquote, Defense of Marriage Act into law, which actually pro- prohibited the federal government from recognizing same-sex unions. And mm-hmm. so, like, as a queer couple who was sort of, like, you know, doing shit, hanging back then, like, were you in many spaces together as gamers? And, and was there anything that felt challenging about that? Like, like, how did it feel to kind of be gamers in the U.S. at this time? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, spaces that we inhabited together as gamers um, tended to be heavily skewed toward the tabletop or mushes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot. There were a lot of queers on the mushes. I gotta say, even even not even even not on furry muck mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> or lambda moo, which was which was the huge queer um, mud derivative that was out there. Um, I think I felt more like I had more issues as an AFAB person in gaming spaces, you know, being walking into a gaming shop or even walking into, cause I mean, games, GameStop existed. That's right. I, that's where I bought my PlayStation. Um, and AFAB. You know, what? And can you define AFAB for the folks at home? <laughs> oh, assigned female at birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, walking into GameStop at the time, walking into gaming stores, walking into comic shops because I was a comic fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I when we moved when I moved up to Boston, I I had um, left my co- collection of graphic novels uh, behind with the uh, with um, my abusive ex. Mm-hmm. 
and I wanted to replace some of them. And we walked into a comic shop in Somerville Mm -hmm. and the guy looked at us and said, we don't have beanie babies here. Oh my God. Right. (laughs) Um, We said, that's not what we're looking for and turned around and left. Yeah. Um, And I've, and you know, at the time gaming shops would give me the hairy eyeball and I'm like, I write for these stupid books that you have on your shelves. Yeah. Um, But, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I was, I, that was around the same time that I started coming out at work. Mm -hmm. Um, but I only came out at work once I got to Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it felt like a safer space here to me, at least. What do you think? Well, I guess it depends on your work because I was never out at work. Well, yeah. I was out at school, but, you know, I was taking my degree in anthropology while studying lesbians. So I kind of felt like I was out by default. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, um, yeah, but uh, I was working at the, I was, was, while I was, um, uh, I was working part-time to finance my way through grad school. I was working at the National Bureau of Economic Research. It's near Harvard Square in downtown. Mm. And I never came out while I worked there. Didn't feel safe. Mm. And, um, you know, that's kind of sad in retrospect. But it it was the 90s. I mean, it was run by a guy who had worked for Ronald Reagan. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were also incredibly lucky because I landed in a, at working at a biotech company that included domestic partnerships. Mm. On medical insurance. So when, because grad student medical insurance is terrible. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Carrie had um, emergency surgery in 2001, I will always know where I was on 9-11. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, we never saw a bill. I mean, because, because she was on, she was on my insurance as a domestic partner and I had really good insurance through that company. Um, so we were really privileged uh, and and incredibly lucky mm-hmm. um, because there are tech companies I could have landed with that wouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. Incredibly mm-hmm. lucky comes with caveats, though. The first caveat is that in order to get that insurance, I had to sign an affidavit that I wasn't sleeping with anyone but you. Oh, for your insurance company? Yes. Yes. Well, for the company, for my for my company. I think to have it approved to have to be approved as my domestic partner. Wow. Okay. I'm not sure that it had, I don't know whether it went to the insurance company. I can't remember now. But yeah. I just think that it's none of people's business. Yeah. And that yeah. really fucking offended me. Yeah. And yes. the second caveat is that the minute marriage was made legal in Massachusetts, the company dropped domestic partnerships, which not only screwed all of the gay people over by making them have weddings in a hurry, but also a number of straight people who preferred to have coverage under domestic partnerships rather than get married. Yeah. Or, you know, people in male-female couples, I should say, rather than straight people. Who knows whether they're straight or not. June and Carrie, thank you so much for sharing this space with us today um, and for having this conversation with us. If folks want to keep up with your work or um, if they want to stay up to date about your forthcoming book, Carrie, um, like are there any online places where folks can do that? No. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really, really sorry, but um, uh, 
I have, I can't keep up with a social media account. Uh, I, I blame it on the fibro. Um, but I really, I really can't. It'll be announced at, through my bio at Brandeis. So at some point. <laughs> okay. Great. <Yeah. laughs> um, is there a due date for, I mean, is there a publication date for your book? Probably not for another two years. Okay. Jude, any online locations where folks can follow your work or keep up with you? Yes. Um, my author website is judemclaughlin.com. That's J-U-D-E-M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N.com. Um, I'm also part of a, a group that's trying to get off the ground with some stuff, doing queer content of various sorts. We're, we're still trying to establish a brand, I think. Okay. Um, but it's called the Glitter Collective and it's glittercollective.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, G-L-I-T-T-E-R-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-V-E.com. And I have a web serial running there right now, which is pretty much our only ongoing content at this point. Um, right. and that's a, uh, heavily trigger warninged, uh, cyberpunk, uh, novella about, um, elderly people with Alzheimer's and AI and things like that. Awesome. And I'm on most social media as Heaven's Calyx, H-E-A-V-E-N-S-C-A-L-Y-X. And that is because I'm a revolutionary girl, Utena fangirl. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but you can find me on Insta and, and Tumblr and uh, other places like that. So. Awesome. Jude and Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on Pixel Therapy. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you both so much. Time is up for today's session of Pixel Therapy. Thank you for tuning in. And we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you want more Pixel Therapy, come check us out at patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod, where you can get a monthly bonus episode for just $2 a month plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly. If you're not up for contributing monetarily, but you enjoyed this episode, there are lots of ways you can support us for free, including following us on Instagram and other social media at Pixel Therapy Pod, or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those things are just as important, and we do appreciate them just as much. If you want to reach out to us, you can send us an email at pixeltherapypod at gmail.com, and you can keep up with all things Pixel Therapy by checking out our not no longer brand new, but still pretty new and <laughs> somewhat flashy, new, somewhat new and flashy website at pixeltherapypod.com. Thank you, Jamie. And finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. This week's side quest um, is the Quillute Tribe's Move to Higher Ground project, which you can actually find at mthg move to higher ground.org. Um, so the Quileutes, you may have heard of them because they were thrust into the mainstream thanks to the Twilight movies, which, I mean, not thanks to the Twilight movies, because I feel like there's been a lot of tourism and just general white people nonsense that came about as a result of Twilight. Um, but the Quileutes are a real people who are precariously located in a tsunami zone right at the edge of the Pacific Ocean. Um, and the survival of an entire people is now at risk. Um, the Quileute Tribal School is specifically at risk, and it is the only one in the world that teaches um, the Quileute language and culture 
to children and adults. Perched just beside the ocean, its breathtaking views are enough to inspire our Quileute children to discover more about our ancestral village and rich heritage. Their website states, if we lose it to a horrific tsunami on a school day, we lose everything, our children's lives and our culture's future. Um, so there's a ton of opportunity to donate. Um, they have a lot of project objectives from relocating to a safer area. They have disaster-proof construction plans. They want to improve and expand upon their tribal engagement. And you can get involved and help at mthg.org. Thank you, Jude and Carrie, for letting us know about this really important cause. Um, and again, check out the story and learn more at mthg.org. Awesome. Thank you, uh, both Judy and Carrie and Spencer, for that side quest. Uh, that is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up those stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel, Pixel Therapy. Therapy. Bye-bye. <laughs>